Well, la- last week we saw Jesus uh, commend the church of Ephesus. Right? We've been going through this sermon series we just started called Shining Lights, looking at the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Right? They're, they're described as lampstands uh, in, in Revelation. That's the symbol. And so we wanted to keep that mo- metaphor, that motif going with shining lights. But Jesus is commending the church of Ephesus for their long suffering for his name. And from the church of Ephesus, he moves next to the church of Smyrna. And we see, what we're going to see again this morning is this theme of persecution. As we see that the followers of Jesus in that city of Smyrna suffered mightily at the hands of the state. Let me pull up this map again. We looked at it last week. So here's kind of the big one. This is Turkey. This is where uh, Asia Minor is what it would have been called back in the day. And here's the close-up so that you can actually read some of it. That's like the the left side of the picture. And so this is at, you know, near the end of the first century that Revelation was written. The Apostle John, who was the last living apostle, right, he he was the only apostle that did not die by martyrdom, who was not killed. But instead of being killed for his faith, he is exiled to this place called Patmos, And so, again, it's pretty small, but that very bottom left-hand corner, there's a little star there. That's approximately where the island of Patmos would have been. And so while he is there, John has this, this immense, this grand vision given to him by God about things that are happening and are to come. And he encourages him to write these words down as an encouragement to the church, both in the first century and beyond. And so the beginning of the church, of that vision, is letters, words of encouragement, words of criticism that come from Jesus, Jesus to seven churches that are listed, you can see there, on there. And so we saw last week Ephesus, which would have been that first uh, location that the messenger would have gone. And so this morning we moved to the city of Smyrna, to the north. So if you want to pull out your Bibles to follow along, we're going to read out of Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 11. So if, if Ephesus was the first letter, that the, the first city that the letter went to, it's not surprising that Smyrna is the second one listed, both geographically, right, because that's the natural path. He's gonna, the messenger is going to go north to Smyrna but also because Smyrna was one of the most important cities in Asia Minor, this modern-day Turkey, for three centuries, right? Ephesus quite often was number one, but if there was a city that would have been kind of constantly vying for that that number two position, it was was Smyrna, right? I mean, think like Ephesus is like the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I, I I don't know who Smyrna would be. Maybe the Ravens, Bengals now, I don't know. Frankly, the Steelers are probably lower than those. Anyway, let's get off football. Listen to the word of Jesus. So I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, 
and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So just to refresh your memory, last week we looked at this formula that we're going to see all seven weeks, all through seven letters. It starts with Jesus providing some type of self-narration, right? He's describing certain attributes about himself. He doesn't label himself as Jesus explicitly, but we are meant to understand that based off of what we read in the text. He then provides some commendations. That's one of the three C's that we've been looking at. He provides some commendations, what, what the church is doing well. And usually what follows are critiques of that church. Now, as we just read in Smyrna, we don't have any. There are none that he, they must have been doing some, something right in that process. And then he closes out with statements of comfort, a promise of comfort to those who overcome. So let's start by looking at the identifier of Jesus. He describes himself in the text as the first and the last. The one who died and came to life. Now, I, I said this last week that most of these descriptors that we're going to see come right out of the previous chapter. Right? Revelation 1, 17 to 18 uses similar words. Right? John, when he first has this vision, falls before the person of Jesus Christ. And, and, and the text says this. He says, when I saw him, John speaking, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Right? Early in the chapter, he uses what's probably more familiar. Right? I am the Alpha and Omega. If you spend any time in church, you've probably heard him described that way. And even though it doesn't talk about those keys to death and Hades, that's going to be really important as we see what the current plight is, what the, those in Smyrna, I don't know, the Smyrnaites, whatever you would call them, the, the people in Smyrna are struggling with. Now, notice the stark contrasts that are used, first and last, alpha and omega, right? The alpha and omega is the first and last uh, characters of the Greek alphabet. It would be like him saying, I am the A to Z. And, and this, this using contrasting pieces was a very typical, uh, uh, typical figure of speech that was used. Called a, it was called a merism, and it con combines these two contrasting points to refer to everything in between. Now, this isn't original to me. I stole this off of Wikipedia, uh, but we use this in our daily language, right? So let's just say that you are uh, in your house, and you lost something, and you're searching everywhere for it. You might say, I searched high and low. Chances are you probably didn't assume it was, like, stuck on the ceiling. You probably weren't looking, like, high on the ceiling, maybe high on a bookshelf, but the idea of high and low indicates that you're looking in the middle too, right? You're looking everywhere for it. And so these contrasts that Jesus is using, that he is first and last, alpha and omega, was dead and came to life, are, are intentional to showcase his authority, his supremacy over everything, that he has been through both life and death and now reigns, right, has the keys, has authority over both. Now, these contrasts are important in our passage because we see two more of these similar statements given to the church of Smyrna. In verse 9, there is the contrast of their poverty. You think that you're poor, but Christ says, I know you're rich. You have prosperity. Verse 10, in his comfort, he gives to them. 
he says that their comfort comes from life that flows out of death. And so Jesus, again, is showcasing that even in situations of poverty, even in situations of death, that he has authority. He is able to be a source of comfort in the midst of their suffering. Right? So to that end, let's, let's move to some of the commendations. Verses 9 and 10. Right, this is about the suffering of the Christians in Smyrna. And it, it is evident that they are being mistreated. They are being arrested, likely being beaten, tortured, even killed for their faith. But if we look at verses 9 and 10, it's, it, I, I would say it's not possible in this day and age to read that without our eyes bulging a little bit, right? right? There's some inflammatory language coming from Jesus. He labels the Jewish people in the region as the synagogue of Satan. So before we get too deep into that, I want to give you a little bit of background, historical background of what was going, going on, and then maybe we can unpack what Jesus means by that. Right, because what we will see is that there are significant tensions between the Christians and the Jews in the city, probably in, in large parts of the Roman Empire, but in particular the city of Smyrna. So as, as I shared before uh, last week, one of the u- unifying elements of the Roman Empire was the imperial cult. It, it was a worship of the state. It was a worship of the leaders. Uh, th- think back to, um, if you've, you've read the Old Testament Egypt, right, the pharaoh was God or the son of the gods. There were some divine attributes associated with them. And the emperor, similarly, was viewed that way. And that was meant to be a unifying principle. So those who refused to worship the emperor or refused, to, you know, or, or strayed from love of state were punished. They were seen as divisive. They were seen as traitors. We see similar trends in our own nation, right? right? Those who question any tenets of the, our nation's founding are branded as unpatriotic, right? Because in a nation of our size, and the Roman Empire was pretty significant for that day and age, there has to be some cohesion. Like, what is it that binds us together? Some underlying identity. And so for the Roman Empire, this was the imperial cult. Now, there were times where there were exceptions to this obligation. The Jewish people of the first century were, at times, exempt from worshiping the emperor. There had been a number of revolts over the centuries before this, but before Jesus, there there was kind of a a live and let live relationship between the Jewish people, the Jewish communities that have been scattered to the Roman Empire uh, and and Rome. The Jewish people were known to be monotheistic. That was one of those identifying traits that was very different from a lot of these other pagan gods and goddesses was the worship of just one. So in some way, this was kind of like a religious exemption that they were given, that they didn't have to follow the party line. But granted, it was a contentious relationship, and that's going to be important in a moment. But they lived. Rome, Rome and the Jews lived in this tension together. Now, sometime in the reign of Tiberius Caesar Augustus, there was this Jewish guy from the region of the Middle East who claimed to be a prophet, who claimed to be a messiah, was executed, and then reportedly came back to life again. Probably know who I'm talking about, right? This is Jesus. And so the earliest Christians were initially viewed as kind of a subset of Judaism. They saw themselves as following Jesus 
who was the one who fulfilled the promises to Israel, right? Because Jesus was Jewish. We see in Acts and we see in many of Paul's writings that when he would go to a city to preach the gospel, the first place that he would go was to worship at the local synagogue. Right? He wanted to help his Hebrew brothers and sisters understand, connect the dots of their faith, of their history, understand Jesus as the fulfillment of their faith. So since there was this proximity, especially early on, between Christianity and Judaism, and Christianity was kind of under the umbrella of Judaism, initially that gave the Christians some protection from this nationalistic persecution of Rome. Right? If, if the Christians could be identified as part of Judaism, then they were exempt from the regulation of worshiping the empire, the imperial cult. Now what we see in Smyrna that's evident from our text, is that that relationship has since soured. It didn't take very long for many of the synagogue leaders to want to create a little bit of space between themselves and this kind of new cult, this new brand, the religion called Christianity. The way is what it was originally called. Both with the Gentiles and the Jewish Christians. You know, the Jewish community of Smyrna was actually on better terms with Rome than other places in the empire, but they didn't want to take a chance. They they couldn't risk being associated with this prophetic messianic movement. Remember how I said a few minutes ago that that relationship between Rome and Judaism existed, but it was contentious. They had a historic, there was a history in, you know, even before the time of Jesus of these prophetic messianic uprisings. Someone would come, there were messiahs all over the place back in the time of Jesus' day. None of them were the true messiah, of course, but they were labeled as the messiah, would lead the Jewish people to revolt against the Roman Empire, and then Rome would usually squelch it, but not, you know, not, not without heavy losses themselves. And so there was, like I said, this live and let live, but they probably felt like they were on the, the razor's edge of that. So they wanted to distance themselves from this kind of new messianic uh, following, right? They, they didn't want to receive the ire of Rome. Now, just before this, so this is written in the 90s AD, roughly, a couple, a couple decades before this, Jerusalem itself had been destroyed. This is when the temple uh, w- was destroyed. All that's left is the, the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall now. And that would have been somewhere between like 66 to 70 AD. And so right now, a couple decades later, there's this detente, that the Jewish leaders, didn't, they didn't want to screw it up. So they made every effort to distance themselves from Christianity, right? They are not one of us. Now, most scholars think that what was going on in the city of Smyrna at this time is that the Jewish people in that city were actively working with the Romans, actively working with the government in order to persecute believers, to root them out, to undermine the spread of Christianity. And, and it's evident that the tension between the Jews and the, the Christians in this city uh, continued for a time, even after this was written. You know, one of the, the historic figures in the church was a guy by the name of Polycarp. So Polycarp Carp lived like late first century to, to mid second century. And he, what's, what's kind of fascinating about him, which I love, this is one of the things I love about church history, is that he was a disciple of John, right? The John that wrote, I don't know why I'm pointing to this, the John that wrote Revelation, right? He, he Polycarp, was his disciple. And Polycarp became the bishop. Now, when we think bishop, we think kind of like high authority, Roman Catholic Church. But remember, Christianity is this like, it's exploding, but it's still very small. It's a very, very small minority in in the cities. But he was the bishop of Smyrna, this city that we're talking about. 
Now, tradition states that it was the, the Jewish community who betrayed Polycarp to Rome, where he was martyred in 155 AD. Uh, this continues to point to this conflict that existed between the Christians and the Jews of the region. So what Jesus says in our letter is that these individuals who are fighting against Christians consider themselves to be Jews, but Jesus is advocating that they're not. And he says, again, this, this kind of what to our mind looks like inflammatory language, that they are of the synagogue of Satan. So what are we supposed to do in the 21st century with harsh language like this? Right, because we, we need to be careful. I want to say this on the front end. We need to be careful that we don't just dismiss the complexity of this language because, well, you know, Jesus said it, so it must be okay. This is one, this passage, along with uh, several others, but this passage is one of what has led to a history of anti-Semitism in the church. And so I think it's important that we study this carefully. And I, I'd suggest there, there are a few things that are going on here. Now, th the first thing that I think hopefully we can understand in our, our present age is that when this was originally uttered, it was uttered against a dominant Jewish culture who was currently oppressing a Christian minority. Right, the Jews had said to the Christians that you're not a part of us. The Christians believed that they were the truest pursuit of God's plan, and they rebutted that it was, you know, actually, no, the, the, the Jews, you're the ones that have forsaken yourself, have cut yourself off from your heritage. So remember, Jesus is using here, even though it's tough language, he is using it to support an oppressed minority. Right? This is in my notes. Hopefully this goes well. We see this in our day. Right? There, there is a battle, it's a little past, but over the last couple of years, between folks who say black lives matter and those who say all lives matter. The difference in that is that oftentimes when folks say all lives matter, it's not that they actually believe that every life is precious to God and matters, but oftentimes it's been used as a way to undermine the BLM movement, to, to, to hold fast on certain, um, certain tenets of our faith, which is based upon kind of white European dominance. Right? When we say black lives matter, we are specifically saying that until black lives matter, right, you may have heard this, right, this is the kind of stuff that you've heard said, until black lives matter, uh, once black lives matter, then we can say all lives matter. Again, I'm, I'm butchering it, but you get the point. We say something like Black Lives Matter because there is this ethnic and racial minority in our country that has a history of oppression against them. And so we are focusing, and at times with some harsh language, to raise up that population to a point so that we can pursue equality, equity, whatever, fill in the blank. So again, that, that's a place where it's not that we're, there's any special treatment or focus going to a, an ethnic minority, but we want to amplify voices that have been silenced. That's kind of what's going on here in this text with, with Jesus when he says things like this. Now, additionally, I want to state that the concept of Satan, when we think about Satan, it, it's been, gosh, over millennia have, has uh, taken on a, a, a face of its own. Right, because in the first century, this language was used pretty flippantly. We even see in the Gospels that the Jewish, religi the, the Jewish religious leaders of the day, 
publicly accused Jesus of working miracles in the power of Beelzebub, which is just another, another name for Satan. You know, I, the first question and answer service, service that we had, I talked about how Satan isn't really a name. We use it as a name, but that's not how it would have been understood in the original uh, context, that it was more of a title. The sa- Satan translates as the accuser. So remember what's going on in the historical context here. The Jewish community is using its power, its leverage with Rome, to accuse Christians to the Roman Empire. So I think what's intended here is that it is not an anti-Semitic trope, but it's meant to be a play on words. Right? That these followers of Yahweh think that they're following him, think that they're doing the right thing, but instead are you know, a tool of the devil to accuse and root out the believers in the city. I mean, again, Jesus used similar language in the Gospels where he calls, um, you know, the Pharisees, you know, they, they trying to make a disciple, the son of Satan type thing. Now, I want to acknowledge that I think that there are reasons that this may have been an appropriate content, comment for that context. But now, in our culture, that power differential has completely swapped between the two groups. And so as a descriptor of, you know, what's going on, that in this day and age, I want to say unequivocally, that is not an appropriate comment for us to use, to label in our, our current context or cultural climate. And because there is, I mean, the church just has, we, we need to be willing to look and grieve over the, not just blind spots, but the places where we have failed miserably as a church. There's, there's not a place for anti-Semitism in the body of believers. Words have power, and as a dominant religious culture in our modern setting, I think it's really important that we need to be careful of the language that we use, that we not be dismissive, that we not be oppressive of others who might disagree with us. Right? What we see with Jesus is just because he had power does not mean that he used that power for his own benefit. I don't know if that's satisfactory or not, but I'm going to keep moving on. Anyone want to talk about it further, let me know. So let's finish the text let's, by looking at the comfort that Jesus provides. He acknowledges that they're suffering. He, or excuse me, he acknowledges their suffering. He, he acknowledges that they're going to be imprisoned by the Roman Empire. Some are going to be released. Some are going to be executed. And there's this very cryptic comment about having tribulation for 10 days. And this is probably meant to be a symbolic period of time. You know, there's a story that uh, I, don't, I don't know if our, your Bible would direct you there in like the interlinearary stuff um, or the cross-reference notes on, on its own, but it reminded me of, of Daniel chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, right? So Daniel, uh, he's one of the, the, the Hebrew boys that has been captured into the kind of the pre-exile bab- by the Babylonians, and in order to, to kind of brainwash he and his friends, the Babylonians, you know, want to feed them and indoctrinate them, and they don't, they don't want to eat the meat that's sacrificed to these false idols. And so Daniel says, hey, how about you give my friends and I just vegetables and water to eat and ten, test us, basically test us for 10 days and see what comes of it. So I think these 10 days are meant to be a refining process, a testing of the Lord to see the way in which he is going to come through. But again, what we see is Jesus doesn't su- shy away from suffering. He doesn't promise that, you know, I'm just going to make it all go away. The comfort comes on the other side of death. 
right? The conquering or overcoming that's described in verse 11 is a reference to withstanding, holding fast to their persecution, to persevere in their trust of God even unto death. Remember, their hope comes from who Jesus said he was at the beginning of the letter. That he knows their pain. That he can empathize because he has been there. He knows what it is to suffer, to die. But their comfort comes from his resurrection. Just as he died and came to life, so too the faithful followers who hold fast in death will live again. His experience provides a relevant hope to them. Jesus doesn't call us to a place that he himself is not willing to go. A few chapters later in Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, it says this. One of the elders said to me, again, this is John narrating, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Right, This lion who is Jesus. And because he has conquered, he can open this scroll. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, he doesn't describe him as a lion, but a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus is the triumphant lion, but he is also the slain lamb. Jesus has gone before us and has paved the path of exaltation through suffering and death. Now, before I get to the application, trying to bring this home for us, I have one additional comment that I find really neat here. So in verse 10, Jesus is saying that the one who is faithful under, unto through death, he will give the crown of life. And once again, this is clearly a reference to life after death. But the descriptor of a crown is brilliant. Right? You've probably seen images, you know, think of those like kind of tiara wreath crowns that you would see. They were often awarded following a, a victory in battle or athletics. You know, um, the Olympics comes to mind of, of those wreaths. But this idea of a crown is also probably a nod to the city of Smyrna. Because the citadel in that city was often compared to a crown. In fact, in my study, I, I read a stat that like 60% of the inscriptions found in the city of Smyrna have an image, a, a, a kind of a logo of that crown. So G what Jesus is doing here is taking a, a symbol that would have been very, very relevant to the people in Smyrna and expanding on it, building on it. Instead of them receiving a crown that is going to perish, you know, the leaves are going to die off or the city is going to be demolished someday, the believers are going to get a true and lasting crown. And, and I find those nuggets fascinating, right? Things that we might miss on that cursory reading. It just shows how deep and wide the scriptures are. In their intentions. All right, so let's turn our attention back to our application. What is it that we can take home in our pursuit of God from this text? Now, the basic principle, uh, the basic application is, is to stand firm in the face of death. But in the 21st century America, martyrdom is really not a relevant application for us just doesn't really happen. There might be a couple of places smattering, but that's not something that you're going to have to face on a potentially daily basis. 
Now, you could always go and play the what-if game, you know, like if I was faced with a decision where someone says, reject God or die, how would I respond? You could do that. Using your imagination is helpful to a point, but the, the truth is, I don't think any of us know how we will respond until we're actually in that moment. So, you know, it, it's, this text is relevant to other people. There are, there are many places in the global church where Christians are abused and are killed for their faith. Right? In, in some countries, getting baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can be the same. It can be equivalent to signing your own death warrant. We as a culture, I think, could treat baptism very flippantly. I mean, we, we celebrate it. It's a great thing. But many places understand that when you stand there and give this public profession of your faith in Jesus before you're baptized, it, it, it's a symbol that you're casting aside old allegiances, forsaking them for the sake of Christ. So death is not really, death for our faith at least, is not something that we need to deal with right now. So let's take a step back and maybe think if there's a broader theme in the letter that might apply to us. Now, while we may not and probably won't have to face death for our faith, we all in some way have to deal with suffering. Suffering is a part of the present human experience, at least on this side of eternity. The Church of Smyrna is commended by Jesus for their patient endurance through suffering. Right? The church of Smyrna stood firm in Christ, even in t- impending death. And I think there are times where we're tempted to cast aside our faith for far less than that. Right? Because suffering is a struggle. We try to find meaning in it. We want to connect the dots. Find a causation. Why has this burden fallen on us? Life doesn't seem fair. We ask God why and sometimes receive silence in response. And the truth is, sometimes life isn't fair. We don't know why evil prospers, why God allows some to thrive while others suffer. I mean, take, take the story in Acts 12, right? Herod, Herod the king of Israel, the king uh, of the Hebrew people, began to persecute the church. And verse 2 tells us that James, the brother of John, who's again writing this letter, one of the apostles, James, is killed by his hand. Right, Herod saw that this pleased the crowd, his constituents, and so he decides, you know, I'm going to put Peter, another one of these apostles, in prison with plans to kill him too. But if you follow the story in Acts 12, Peter is divinely rescued by God. God breaks him out of prison and he continues to live. Why did God save Peter and not James in that moment? Seems unfair. Both of them were following Jesus. Both of them had been sold out for him, teaching as many people as they could. And the truth is, we don't, we don't know the answers to those questions. The Bible repeatedly says that God's ways aren't our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so is the mind of God above ours. But story after story, when folks ask God, why are we suffering? God often doesn't give an answer or at least not the answer that they want to hear. Take Job. Take, take Habakkuk. Why is this happening? God doesn't give an answer, but reminds them who he is. Reminds everyone of who he is. 
suffering in our lives, I would say, has some opportunities for us. Because, and I think this is one of the reasons that God allows suffering to happen, is because during periods of suffering, any illusion that we have control over our own lives is washed away. Right? We, we become face-to-face -face with our helplessness, that we're in a hole, we are in a pit, and we cannot get ourselves out of it. One of the benefits of suffering is it forces us to rely more on God. Now, I, I know this is a bit cliche. I go, I've gone through seasons where I've kind of disliked this poem, but I've also had seasons where it's been very meaningful to me, and I know it's been meaningful to a lot of folks. You've probably been familiar with that, you know, footprints prayer, footprints poem. Someone looks back at their life, notices those two sets of footprints in the sand, God walking with them, but when they suffered the most, they only saw one set. And they ask, God, why did you abandon me? And the poem has Jesus saying, my precious child, I love you and I would never leave you. It was during those times, during those seasons that I carried you. Because Christ walks with us through suffering. He provides aid to us in our times of need. The great preacher Billy Graham put it this way. He says, quote, all I know from the short letters in Revelation is this. Christ commands us to overcome in the strength that he alone can supply. Right? The call to overcome is in the strength that God alone can supply to us. The call to overcome, because we're going to see that, conquer or overcome, depending on your translation at the end of each letter. It, it is not a call to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but is an invitation to trust in the provision of the Lord and the power of his mighty hand. That God is with us. God is around us, within us. And at some of the most difficult times in my life, that was when my faith was most palpable. It felt most real. I had that, that connection with God. It was my lifeline because I didn't have anything else. But let's take a look at maybe what one specific example of this suffering can be. Now, before the Christians in Smyrna are killed, verse 9 says that Christ has seen the slander that has gone against them. And I think that means that he also sees the slander towards us. There are going to be times when we're going to be the object of others' ridicule. There are going to be times that people dislike us for our faith. Now, don't use that rationalization to be a jerk. I've heard so many people who are just act like jerks to others and be like, well, Jesus said that people wouldn't like me, right? That's not what he's, he's, he's not giving us an excuse to misbehave. But you've probably faced it. You know, one of the, the times that this was most clear for me when I was running for Swissville Council a couple years ago, right? People knew I was a pastor and they had certain, uh, certain ideas about the type of Christianity that I represented. And they said some really nasty things about me. Like one, one in particular called me Chris Incel. Uh, incel stands for invol involuntary celibate. It is a um, very pejorative term that is usually used to label someone as a misogynist. I, I, I try to carry myself in a way I don't, I don't, I don't think that I'm a misogynist. Um, but, you know, this is like, it, it fits because kind of like, sounds like my last name. And, you know, people could say these to like mock me. When, when these types of attacks come, what do we do with them? Right? Whether they're verbal or physical, how will we respond? The natural tendency is to fight back, to argue, right? to find some way to get back at that target, some way to exonerate ourselves in the court of public opinion. But let's hold fast to the encouragement from Jesus to these Christians in Smyrna. 
He doesn't say, fight back. He doesn't say, you know, get yourself out of prison. He doesn't say, I'm going to excuse you from the suffering. What he says is, don't fear that you are about to suffer. Don't fear when they ridicule you. Don't fear when they say nasty things about you behind your back. Don't fear when they slander you to your neighbor. Truth is, we can't control the behaviors of others. The people around us may not be able to see the duplicitous nature of others, but God does. He says, don't fight evil with evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. And the truth is, this type of goodness is not something that comes naturally. This goodness comes, like Billy Graham said, only through the power that Christ provides. So if you are hurting this morning, regardless, whatever your circumstances, if you find yourself hurting, know that you are seen by God. Whatever your situation, he does not promise you an easy path, but he does promise to go with you through it. He is trustworthy. We can hold fast to our faith knowing that on the other side of our trials, there will be a day that we are given that crown of life. Let me leave you with just a couple of uh, reflection questions and then we'll, we'll close up. So it's really just one question and one statement. In what area of suffering or slander do you need to lean into the strength and goodness of God? So I want you to think about that this week. Think about areas that you are suffering, whether it's coming at the hands of others, whether it's your circumstances, whatever it might be. What area of suffering are you facing? In light of that, how can you lean into the strength that God provides? And the second is this. Read. Put my notes slowly. Read slowly Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Okay? Meditate on it. Allow its words to permeate into your soul to know that God is with you. Know that the Lord is near. Join me in prayer. God, you are a God who is near to the brokenhearted. As we struggle, as we suffer, may we hold fast to know that we do not suffer alone. You know, I think of that song that keeps, uh, has been playing on K-Love every now and then, that, you know, I think it's by Hillsong, that while we're in the fire, that you are with us. There's another in the fire. There's another in our suffering. One that is like a son of man, knowing that Jesus Christ himself has gone before us, that he has paved the way back to you through his obedience to the point of death, Lord, may we recognize that he of all people was one who ought not to have suffered. If he was not spared suffered, why do we think we should be as well? So God, as much as we will pray that you take this suffering from us, like Jesus, may we pray that this cup is removed from us, but not our will, but yours be done. Lord, if you choose not to take the suffering away, may we rely on you to give us the strength to get through it just as you did to those Christians in Smyrna some 2,000 years ago. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.